Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here to my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 10th of the 1st. It is a beautiful Sunday. Right, obviously rather a lot happened this week. We will be going through Trump being banned from absolutely everything, including Spotify, which means we're all going to miss his fabulous mixtapes moving forward. Parlor, Gab, they're also starting to be banned from everything. And there's some interesting movements with more restrictions on alcohol. But to start, because this is apparently now just a consistent slot, vaccination. Vaccination numbers haven't been updated since the 7th, despite promises that they would be updated on a daily basis. We were told there would be 35,000 people vaccinated this week. Uh, we We were talking last time we were on about how that would require them to scale up their vaccination efforts hundreds of percent on a day. What appears to have happened since then is that Some hospitals have continued to vaccinate over the weekend, but not using HSE teams, using their own internal teams, so it's all a bit weird. So we don't know how many numbers have been done there. It'll be interesting to see if we hit the 35,000 just on that, although there are some weird uh, issues with that. Um, There's a piece in The Independent today that doctors fear being left behind in the initial vaccination uh, drive due to what they call a mismatched approach. Hospital in Cork vaccinated six times more management and background staff than doctors in the first week of vaccine rollout. thing I find interesting about this is that it looks what happened is the HSE sent out doses to hospitals, but there's no plan for how those should be administered or who they should be given to as such. And so the hospitals are just on an ad hoc basis deciding what way they want to do it. And that strikes me as a problem, considering that once these vials are open, they have a limited shelf life. And uh kind of seems like that should be overseen by someone. Yeah, we. I mean, there, there's, there's a suggestion from some people that with, without proper coordination or planning about how this is being done, that we could end up throwing out vaccines when our single biggest problem is we don't have enough of them. And we may end up spoiling There were also apparently at least two hospitals which were promised vaccine deliveries uh, this week and had planned to vaccinate people over the weekend, their staff, and just didn't receive them and aren't sure why they didn't receive them, didn't receive any notification that they weren't going to receive them. So that is good old standard HSE. Before we move on to the alcohol thing, it is, I think, also important to mention uh, the EU's latest comment on acquiring additional uh, vaccines. The EU announced it had acquired additional vaccines, but also in that, our dear Ursula, the head of the European Commission, said that everyone had an agreement and they couldn't procure anything themselves separately and that this agreement was legally binding. It is legally binding, she said. We have all agreed legally binding, repeating, that there will be no parallel negotiations, no parallel contracts, we're all working together. Yeah, it's strange because the Germans uh, bought an additional 30 million doses, I think immediately before that announcement. I think it was almost almost when the announcement was being made, basically. Have they bought the doses yet or did they just announce they, wi- they would immediately after the announcement? Uh, after Ursula's announcement, the French government confirmed that they were engaged in this process and would be purchasing more. It's also uh, the Danes also. I mean, they're not large numbers. I mean, the Germans only bought thirty million, but then thirty million would do this country several times over. Yeah, it, I mean, thirty million by them that would be worth that would do us by three times over uh, if we could get hold of that. Uh, the 
the Danes who have been rattling along are seen to be. I, oh, this is partly this is a story about vaccination. Partly it's just a general EU story of typical EU fuckruppery and nonsense. Ursula, who when she was Minister for Defence in Germany, was regarded by the military as an absolute total fuck up because she couldn't organise proverbial piss up in the brewery and was considered to be peculiarly bad a procurement. So naturally, in the bit of the pandemic, he'd say, let Ursula go off and organise the procurement of these drugs, what is going to save the lives of people. And Ursula comes back and says, well, we're going to do it like this, because altogether in solidarity and together in Europe and solidarity, we'll be better at it. And turns out Gary actually would have been far, far better if we just let everybody get on with it and do it themselves, because they would be able to get what they wanted. But there you go. They've now come back and they're and you've got, <laughs> you've got the, I think the Slovenians got 26,000 vaccines when they would have, should have been getting 600,000. The Bulgarians have got far fewer than they, than they could have had because the, apparently they don't like the fact that you need dry ice to keep this stuff. And lots, some of the countries have bet on AstraZeneca because AstraZeneca is around two quid a dose another and the the Pfizer is 25 so the Germans just simply have more money and they're going on and they're buying it all up now as regards this but what Ursula has done here is a week is a classic commission thing if you keep saying something then people will just say oh well, it must be true so we have a legally binding agreement but she doesn't but the, the commission would love to get their hands on health as uh, a competence, as they would like to get their hands on everything as competence, but they don't have it. It is a reserved competence. So she's, we have a legally binding agreement. Nobody can point to this binding agreement. Nobody can produce it. However, uh, a, 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 a new diplomat who was speaking on off the record in Politico conceded that the vaccine strategy was, quote, not a proper international agreement as such, more of a gentleman's agreement. And also, and this is the important but there is no way to sanction anybody and the commission is trying to make it look correct now gentlemen's agreement historically in international affairs haven't been legally binding not legally binding why are we talking about a gentleman's agreement what she is saying is for the sake of solidarity for the sake of it all doing it together we're willing to let people here or there die here because we have fucked up our vaccine procurement strategy. We are continuing so to do. But you know, what's far more important than people dying in Ireland or in Germany or Denmark or in Portugal is that we have solidarity within the union. We don't have, do you know what people have been talking about, Gary? It's horrible. And I know you'll be upset by this, but I'm going to say it. Vaccine nationalism. Yes, that the Germans are practicing vaccine nationalism. Well, I want to know why we're not. I mean, if, the, if the Danes have been able to go out and buy, and the French are buying, and the Germans have bought, are we? Considering we are paying, the, the PUP pens are going to be around, what, a half a billion a month. Uh, are we out there snuffling around amongst those who have extra vaccines that they don't want or have decided that they, they can't afford for whatever reasons? Are we doing that? Are we doing that to boost up our supplies in order to be able to speed up our rollout and in order to save lives and to bring an economy back into some kind of reasonable order so we can start to get on with the recovery? Are we doing that, Gary? Are you confident 
that as we speak, Simon Coveney is running around Europe with uh, a suitcase, a chilled suitcase for, for vaccines run behind him and a checkbook in the other. I mean, it's entirely possible that Michal Martin will convene a Citizens' Assembly to look at this issue. You know, that's a good idea. We should have a Citizens' Assembly and then we should have tribunal and then we should report back on it. Maybe spring of 2022. Does that sound like a good time for you? I think that's an acceptable time for Anne. You don't want to rush into this. You want to do it right. You don't want to do it fast. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I've been told at this stage three times why our vaccination scheme is going as it is, is because you want to get this right. You don't want to get this quick. You want to get it right. So I'm reassured by that, and I shan't be talking about this vaccination scheme anymore. However, uh, I will be carrying out Aliyah and moving back to the homeland of Eretz Israel very shortly. Anyway, so that is the now tri-weekly update on vaccination that apparently we must do. I am hoping that they hit their target this week. If they can hit 35,000, that will actually be quite impressive. 35,000 would be impressive. 35,000 would be impressive. I don't want to be a prick about this, Gary, you know. It's the one thing that I try most of all in life, but 35,000. The Danes, small country edge of the world, like ourselves, a peninsula rather than an insula, on the 8th of January had done 112,000. Anyway, so the vaccines, I suppose, is some sort of bright spot. And, uh, as to bright spots going away, however, from Monday, the uh, an, another part of the Public Health Alcohol Act of 2018 comes in. They've been introducing this kind of gradually. But from January 11th, there are three new things in place. Firstly, you cannot sell alcohol at a reduced price uh, on the basis of purchasing something else as well. So you can't, for instance, uh, the example of the Irish Times is uh, buy six bottles for €50 Euro or buy six and get 25% off. They're both gone. So uh, you know, discounts for bulk buying, they're gone. Also, for example, if there was some kind of a meal deal where you were getting a starter, a main course, a dessert... And throw in a bottle of wine with that, and if the price of the wine was reduced because it was part of the deal, you can't have that. So you can't use loyalty points on alcohol sales as well. Uh, so if you're buying alcohol in any of the supermarkets, you're not going to get loyalty points. So you can't then use those for discounts or anything like that. Uh, same with grocers off-license. I suppose if, you, if you're just an off-license, like if you're O'Brien's or something... You just don't have a loyalty scheme anymore. Oh, also, if you have loyalty points on your card and you're with somewhere like O'Brien's, they can't be used from tomorrow. So go today to get your alcohol. Run. I don't. I. I don't know if you. If you're planning on giving me a stroke, a rage stroke today, Gary. But you're. You're. You're working your way the, nicely towards this. I mean, okay. Vaccinations is a thing of life and death and the destruction of an economy. This is the other end of the scale, and but that's kind of what makes it so annoying. It's a level of pettiness and stupidity and meanness and nastiness and what the fuck business is it of yours? Yeah, you used to sell wine, didn't you? I, I used to sell wine. I used to import wine. Maybe you're just too close to this, Michael. Maybe you're, you're emotionally compromised by your knowledge of the business. Say you shop in my local supermarket Pettit's, now Pettit's Super Value. Now, as my mother, Lord of Mercy, and her did for years, right? 
And they had your, your, your petted's card, which even after it became a super value, you couldn't use other super value cards because it was petted's. Petted's is a very small chain of around six very nice super, little supermarkets down in the southeast. And you, over this, the space of the year, you would build up your lo- your points. My mother, this is what my mother would do, and this is what many, many people would have done, and they would do it in Tesco's and they would do it in Don's as well. And you build up your points, and it comes to Christmas. And at Christmas, you use the points to buy a couple of bottles of whiskey, a bottle of gin, a bottle of vodka, a slab of, of beer, half a slab of Guinness, whatever it was, to have the cheer for the house to have to buy your christmas cheer it was a way of saving and it was a way of on something which was obviously a luxury obviously an extra but by doing it with your points it was a, you know you, you didn't feel like you were actually spending you won't be able to do that anymore because that's wrong and wicked and it causes alcoholism and it means that children will die in the middle of a role being beaten up by drug drunk adult i don't know murderers or something why 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 what business really this is what our government is spending its time thinking about it is spending its time deciding what you can and cannot spend your loyalty points on your store card if that is not in and of itself shameful and embarrassing to them the fact that they're doing this to no purpose, to absolutely no purpose whatsoever, except to make it more difficult for ordinary people to save a couple of shillings on buying a glass of wine or a tot of whiskey. If they hate drink so much, come out and say, start your prohibition campaign. That way, at least, we will finally have something where we can go around the country, we can stir the mobs up, and we can go up to Leinsterhan and burn ye out. Now, Michael, that's that's dangerous language. No, I I tell you, we we'll do it a damn sight better than Trump the Trumpians did, because we will have a real reason, because that would represent an act of tyranny, and since the early Middle Ages in Europe and in uh, European philosophy, it has been recognised that a people have a right to resist the tyrant, and that tyrannicide is sometimes not a crime but a duty. You know what? Maybe I should stop asking the wine seller about what this alcohol deal means for society. By the way, actually, just from the point of the wine, I don't think you're you're actually going to lose a whole lot. Because generally speaking, and I don't want to impugn everybody here, generally speaking, wine offers in supermarkets, you know, those like, you know, 50% off uh, or six, they're not great value. They tend the, the the wines that are massively reduced are actually reduced around the price they should be in the first place, and the ones that are six for whatever they may be they may be fine. I don't. A lot of the time, it's a way of shifting wine that they can't otherwise shift. You're not you're not going to miss a lot there. But that's not the point. I'm not actually sure if in the last decade I've bought any alcohol that was on discount. Well, I tell you, for example, one of the, uh, I think it's Tesco's does this thing where if you buy six bottles, you get a 25% discount. And that's worthwhile. I mean, if you're having a party and if you are you like bubbles or something and you're, you have a few quid and you're buying the Tesco's own, own label champagne, so it's not that madly extravagant, but it's a very nice drop of champagne. That's a significant saving. I mean, 25 off six bottles is a decent saving. Uh, even if you're having just a big dinner party, you buy half a dozen white and half a dozen red. Again, you're getting 25, 25% as a decent discount. Alcohol consumption is obviously partially um, 
class-based. The type of alcohol that you consume is has a strong socioeconomic uh, background. People who tend to drink more beer and tend to buy more multipacks tend to be more working class. They tend to be poorer and uh, therefore have less disposable income. So it's very important because these are the people you can trust with drink the least that these people pay the most. Because you wouldn't want poor people being able to go and get like <laughs> a slab of cans or something like that. Yeah, we had guys ask, ask Royals. How would they get into the factories the next day? Yes, indeed. And then what would our factory owners think, Michael? I'll tell you what else, Gary. As they're working on the shells for the front and the TNT and all that, they'll be blowing themselves up you know, regularly across the... And that's why we need better licensing laws and closer attention to the to the whole issue of the working classes drinking at all. As Oscar Wilde said, you know, work is the curse of the drinking classes. And I, we... We really need to take this far more seriously. And obviously, people like you and me, Gary, people like the minister, people like the Taoiseach and the Taunishta, it's, you know, it's like Jack Donaghy in 30 Rock says, don't worry about it. Rich drunk is different to poor drunk. You're, you're still allowed to drive. Yeah, we all use heroin on a purely recreational basis in a controlled country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we're not like these, I mean, these poor people. And there might be ethnic types as well, Gary. We know there are ethnic types that drink. They have started to move in since we opened the fishmongers district up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and a lot. And then the thing is, those ethnic types, they drink and they drink that cheap fire water. And they all use knives, you know, and they're killing each other, slicing each other up. We have to do something about that as well. This is another episode in which I have to link the uh, Brass Eye Builders and Black sketch, so that doesn't <laughs> take out of context, and we're made to look racist. Oh, the, the, the third thing, by the way, that's, that's banned under this is promotions of three days or less, so you can no longer do a weekend promotion. Um, God forbid, that you know, or like a sporting event promotion. Can't do those. This is, again, obviously a nasty-minded attack on poor people, uh, not too much. But do you know what, Gary? We'll find enough time coming down the lane. It hasn't arrived yet, but minimum alcohol unit pricing is also coming. That'll be the final These month. are people sitting at home and they dared to work in industries that largely can't work from home. So they've just been receiving free money this year. Like free, it. free money. And they're spending it on drink, you know. And not decent drink. No, no, no. Cheap old drink. Cheap old, cheap old drink. I mean, these are the kinds of people that don't drink Smirnoff or Finlandia or Absolute or Grey Goose. They don't, Gary. They don't even know the Grey Goose is vodka. So, so uh, yes, if you if you do have uh, if you have points on your O'Brien's cards or, or any sort of other thing that you can exchange for alcohol, stop this podcast and run. Just run to them and embrace them strongly. And then get your alcohol using those points because from tomorrow they can't be used. I, Michael, I am I'm sure the listeners understand that when we talk about the need for cheap alcohol, we're doing it for them, not for us. We are the bigger people here. And also because, frankly, I've house stuffed with alcohol because that tends to be what people give me as gifts because they think, well, Michael, he likes gin and wine, doesn't he? I had possibly one of my most middle-class complaints ever the other day. What was that? And I just looked around. I was like, I've got no more space left in these cupboards. I've just got too much damn champagne. 
<laughs> you saved it up for the wedding. No, people just keep giving it to me as gifts, but I don't drink champagne. I only drink whiskey. I don't drink any wine derivative. I think it's something very festive and very, you know, fizz and pop about champagne. It's very Christmassy. No, like a proper alcohol. You've taken a gun or a dagger or a poison. You've killed the child inside you. That's, 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 and that's very sad. I, however, have cultivated the child inside me. And he's, he still likes bubbles. Uh, particularly if they're Blanc de Blanc. This government is putting Coke in our lives. Coke in the champagne of our lives. Well, the champagne of our lives is just stuck inside your, your house. In the middle of a pandemic. And this, this is what they consider to be the important thing to do. God, that was a tortured metaphor. Not even a metaphor, more an observation. Not to be going out and actually, number one, securing a present supply of vaccinations, vaccines for your people, and then organising a, a rollout so that you can do it at more than three people a day. Rather than do that kind of nonsense, which I can see, who would, what satisfaction would there be in that? No, what you need to do is tell people what they can spend their points on on their cards. No more kittens a Guinness for you, matey. God, they make really, Gary. Democracy does not work. As time, we just accepted it. It's just over. We tried it. We are one of the oldest democracies in the world, you know. Have you ever considered trying out for the position of spokesperson for the Vinters uh, Union? Vinters, uh, Vinters wouldn't have me. I'm far too. In century, vintners have—they roll over and die nowadays. Huh? Oh well, we understand. They basically have accepted this premise that they are—they're drug pushers, and they—but that the only thing is that they should be allowed to do it in a regulated and careful way, as long as. But they are, they understand that they are actually wicked people's push pushing a, a horrible. Oh, I drug. look forward to you setting up the revolutionary Vinters Federation of Ireland. The Revolutionary Drinkers Association. From that to, I was going to say something of importance, but we will see. Trump is finding the downside of weakness at this point. Turns out when you lose uh, a lot of your power, Michael, people who dislike you are going to start moving on you. In this case, pin interest. <laughs> no, no, you're making that up. Pin interest have not abandoned. You can, you can still be the president of the United States, but pin interest bans you. Have they banned him? They have. As has Spotify, as has YouTube, as has Reddit, as has uh, everything, really. Everything except Parlour. And Gab. What's, do you know of a thing called MeWe? No. People have been telling me to get on MeWe. Uh, and I'm thinking, it's the next generational social network. It's sort of an alternative to Facebook, apparently. And I know nobody who is on it, but it must be the next... According to Wikipedia, it was popular in Hong Kong in November of 2020. That's very specific, that isn't is it? That is incredibly specific, isn't it? <laughs> it's like Bebo. Very popular in Indonesia in, 19, in in 2013, around the time of the... around Easter, the second week when it got... when the weather was nice. Anyway. Trump is being taken off absolutely everything. Parler... After Trump was taken off Twitter, Parler, which is an alternative social media app, moved to, I think, the most popular download. It was the most popular download on the Apple Store. And I think it may have also been the most popular download on the Google Store. It was removed from the Google Store. It is now being removed from the Apple Store. They were suspended, but now they're gone. And it just... The, the entire situation is is an interesting one. And the debate around it that I've seen has been 
absolutely horrendous. And I don't mean as in unpleasant, I mean as just ill-conceived and people have no idea what they're talking about. But it's the internet, so that's pretty much just a continuation of it. There are some people saying that this is a terrible affront to free speech, that Donald Trump should be removed. And there are other people, primarily people on the left, saying that corporations should be absolutely free to do anything they want, which is a new and bold vision from the left. <laughs> a new and bold <laughs> I know, it, it kind of, on a certain level, it appeals to me. But then when I hear corporations should be able to do anything they want, I kind of think, I wonder how much money I could save if I invest in a company and just started dumping industrial waste into the water. Oh, those pesky externalities. Well, I suppose it's not a question so much now. In in this case, it's not a question of monopoly, is it? It's a question here of cartel. You could argue a lot, and I think reasonably, that it was impossible to effectively have any kind of monopoly. I mean, in on in the in the net, the world of the internet, because companies come up and flare up and come down so quickly. Um, we talked. I mean, NetSpace gave way to Bebo, and Bebo gave way to Facebook, and Facebook in its time will give way to something else. We imagine. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's Coca Cola. There is a cartel now in operation. You have. I mean, it's the the thing with Parler particularly because we. I, 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 I'm not sure if you, you, you mentioned it, Gary. We know that it's been taken down off uh, the Apple Store and off Google Play. But just to finish the job, Amazon are taking it off its servers. Yes, to put that in perspective, I think Google and Apple between them have somewhere in the region of 99% of the market on mobile phones. Yeah, I mean, the Microsoft phones are not so many. And then there's blueberries. Blueberries? Black, sorry. <laughs> Blackberries. So I think just, just on parallel, the Google and Apple are one thing. Amazon taking them offline is a slightly different thing. And I think the debate here is, obviously companies should have the right to run their affairs as they wish. However, is there a point, and this I think is, is actually the debate rather than some sort of extreme position on this, is there a point at which the impact of a company becomes so wide that you can then regulate its behavior? So, for instance, if you are, for instance, a bakery and you refuse to make someone a cake, they can go to a different bakery. If you are the only bakery, is it then, is it then right for the state or for a regulator to go, well, you can no longer make those decisions because of your scale and impact? Yeah, but also, Gary, sorry, I, I, I want to go back to the point I made before. It's not simply about, the, it's, not, it's also about a, a cartel is a group of people acting in a concerted way in order to achieve a specific end, which is uh, ultimately to deprive the consumer of choice and to fix, either to fix options or to fix prices or to fix something. When you, you, you see a situation like when Google, Apple, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, uh, I don't Instagram. I imagine must have gone in on the. Of course it has, because Instagram is there. Instagram is all of this. This is clearly and obviously 
a group of people acting in a concerted way to, to achieve a thing. And, and this is a, this is obviously extra democratic because it's extra governmental. And both you and I, our instincts would very much be they're private companies, private companies can do what the hell they like. But you get to a point where, frankly, I don't know how many people really could have imagined as systemic and systematic and organized and complete an act, a, a series of actions as we have seen in the last 24 hours. I don't think anybody in their mind, in their mind, playing mind games or thought experiments about the issue of private companies and government regulation would have got to the where we have got today. I mean, this is incredible. And it does demand some kind of a response. You think, no, this is... This is not acceptable. I did when his, his account went down, I joked that I was looking forward to his live streams. Um, but Twitch, which is the prominent live streaming platform, has also banned him. Um, what you said there about how this is, there's a, this looks like it's concerted. I think that there's two things here. One, most of the tech companies are filled with very similar people. So yes. it's not really surprising that when one moves, others were already trending that way. Also, you probably had a lot of these guys who were waiting to do this and wanted to do this, but didn't want to be the first person who does it. So one does it, the others do it, and there's no coordination, but it just cascades. Uh, yeah, also, I, I imagine that there's an element that they want that they weren't going to do it if Trump wins the election either, because... Well, that's the thing. This all happened the day after it was shown that the Republicans would not control uh, the Senate. Yeah. So... The day after, a lot of it's found that a lot of these committees will not have Republican chairs. He's gone. So perhaps elections just have consequences. And maybe more than the presidential election, maybe in the in that Georgia Senate election, maybe one of the, maybe the election that really had the big consequences. There's certain things that uh, I think are slightly more troublesome here than others. So, for instance, Trump getting banned from Twitter. I don't really care. He is a public figure, but Twitter has the absolute right to decide how its platform should be used. Now, whether or not the current laws that are in place to allow it to do that should be there, that's a different thing. But I think the issue here is less with how Twitter runs itself and the idea of a um, a global village square, effectively. The issue is, is just the scale of these companies. What I did find slightly worse is things like Amazon moving against people. Uh, Shopify, which runs Trump's online stores, cut links with him. His email suppliers cut links with him. I feel the same way I feel about that as when we saw things like MasterCard or Visa come out and say that they wouldn't handle certain transactions or uh, that they wouldn't deal with certain individuals. Because those aren't things like Twitter. Those are stuff those are the stuff that other stuff is built on. They're foundational elements. So if you get refused the ability to use MasterCard, for instance, you're going to have a hell of a time. Yeah, I think Amazon taking it off the servers, to me, that's that was the most shocking and concerning. I think the thing there is, is these are obviously private companies and they, they have the right to run their affairs as they see fit. But, but Gary, what you're saying that. We, we, in the United States, they don't. And you might be you might be making um, you may be making a moral or philosophical point, but in the United States and in many places in the world, they don't actually have that right. We know from the result of court cases 
the famous you you adverted to the to the cake now in in in, uh, in the Belfast cake ultimately found in the favor of the cake maker but not in the United States in the United States the cake maker had to make the cake and a series of decisions in the in the courts regarding the right to refuse service have consistently found that you don't often have the right to refuse service and it seems to me in situations far more nuanced than this this is a question this is pure politics i mean i just have a look at the reasons that twitter said they were banning trump for and the reasons were ridiculous and spurious but i think they were ridiculous and spurious for this point twitter has terms and conditions you agree to when you sign up to it it applies those incredibly selectively and effectively at its own whimsy more than anything else. So when they decided to ban Donald Trump, the problem there is you can go, oh, he, he broke these parts for terms and conditions, but so do so many other prominent people on the platform and pretty much any political ideology. I think the favourite one that people were throwing around were the, the calls by the president of Iran for the destruction of the state of Israel. And it's fairly plain, and not only does it call for it, it says we will do it. Or you have the Chinese state recently effectively glamorizing a genocide. There's like there's tons of stuff like that. But I think the actual, I think the 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 appropriate argument here, the appropriate consideration here is is given the wider market, what is the actual impact of any particular company, and that should lead then to how restrictive they can be on who they give their services to. And I think if you're MasterCard, I'm not comfortable with the MasterCard with the idea of MasterCard restricting services to effectively anyone. And then it sort of moves down from that. And the, and not just MasterCard, but the, the, the obvious connection, the leap from MasterCard is to, is to a bank. And we have seen instances of banks, individuals say that they didn't want to, to serve certain kinds of people. Now that even more, much more so than a wedding cake. You have to have a bank account. Increasingly in the Western world, to exist without a bank account is, if not, it's possible, but it's deeply problematic. And when you get to the point where people say, we don't want your business, we don't want that kind, we don't want to be associated, so we're not going to give you a bank account. We're not going to, for example, we're not going to support the payment platforms for your business. I did. Did you see Alexi? Yes, I did. That's the thread. His, his rather long thread on Twitter. Alexei Navalny is the uh, opposition leader in Russia, and mm -hmm. he came out and he said, "This, you know, this is censorship. Yes, it's a private company, but from being in Russia and looking at China, it's very easy for private companies to become uh, friends of the state and enablers." And then he mentioned that he himself in Russia, he can't go on Russian TV. I think also, I'm not sure if he can use uh, payment cards in Russia. That may actually be also something that's being done. But what I loved, Michael, and I, oh, I just, I loved the feeling of it, was Americans in the comments underneath him telling him that he didn't understand the appropriate limits of free speech and that he didn't understand... Uh, how dangerous it could be if the leader of a country uh, started <laughs> to undermine law and order. And I was like, yeah, oh, fuck yeah. it to my veins. Just this feeling, particularly considering that 
Navalny, uh, Putin did try and kill him recently. Yes. And, um, yeah, so I think he's, he's pretty aware of yeah. it. Yeah. When you get these serious-minded American liberals explaining to a man who is the, the, the face of political opposition in Russia, and let's face it, Gary, being the face of any kind of opposition in Russia is a very dangerous business. There are many, many journalists and others who will not be able to attest that fact because they are in their graves. And he has had at least one attempt in his life, probably more if, we, if, he, if he and we knew it. And he's talking about this and they come on and lecture this man, all, and leaving aside just by the very fact that he's a grown-up adult Russian, living now in the time of Putin, but living the time of Putin, which comes from before that, the Yeltsin, back to the Gorbachev and to the Brezhnev and to the Stalin and to the Tsars, these, they have an understanding of the problems of power and corruption and the limits of government and the importance of, league, of the respect in the law, I think. And he was getting lectured at this. I mean, Gary, you must have enjoyed Jim, the condescension of these people, the patronizing tone. I would describe it as righteous condescension. If you could home, you, you could run, I'm sure you could run a small electric car on the, the condescension. It would power a small electric car, I have no doubt about it. Hmm. It would hum along. And I don't know why I enjoyed it so much, but everyone I saw, I was just like, oh yeah. That's the ticket. <laughs> Give me some Every more just like blue check political professor below him. Just saying, no, sir, this is a Wendy's. You're like, oh, fantastic. Um, it, was, it was a beautiful moment. Did you see how he uh, how he showed that Putin had been the person who tried to um, poison him? No. Was that? <laughs> how was that? So he sat down with a, a media outlet and they, uh, they spoofed the telephone number. Of, oh, yes. Uh, yes. That's right. Yes. Russian Sorry. intelligence facility and called around all the members of a team that had the team that had tried to poison him and eventually he was able to convince one of them that he was actually calling from their headquarters and was uh, an adjunct to i think the director and needed to be debriefed over the phone and managed to convince this guy who'd been part of the team that tried to kill him or actually i think part of the cleanup team yeah but gary to be fair now you have to be clear that he was very sneaky and he called at a very like, late at night, early in the morning, and the man was in bed and sleepy. And he, even though he knew the man was in bed and sleepy and therefore not maybe in the best position to understand, he still continued with this, which is very unethical, really. I thought it was unethical journalism. I'll, I'll try and link to the transcript. It is brilliant. And he tells him the whole story. It's a very long call where he's just like, no, no, tell me more about this and eventually he gets true to someone who's just who just believes him and just starts talking and he's, he's basically orders him doesn't he to say, we want to make an assessment of of the of the pro the program you know, how how well it went could have you gone better could have where 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 the problems were and he's no i don't know come on come on, come on. and the guy tells him everything it's it is it is wonderful stuff no wonderful i don't know when you discover yeah by the way we were right the president of of russia is trying to kill me it's not great. No, but it's nice to have proof. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd be. I. I, I think it'd be nicer for people to say, "Actually, it turns out, no, no one's trying to kill you. 
that would be even better news. But there you go. You can't have everything in life, can you? You can't have everything in life. And I did like Putin's rebuttal of if we had tried to kill him, he'd be dead. Yeah, it's not great, is it? I can see what he's going for, but like it's not. It, people have done that one before, and it's it's always a little bit worrying. Turns out you did try and kill him, and now you're just looking at yeah. Now you just look like you couldn't quite do it. I think the the problem with with what we're seeing now it's actually the problem with um the problem you can have with law as well. Problem that happens when laws are not applied consistently, but are rather applied uh, based on the personal characteristics of the case or on the whims of a bureaucrat rather than everyone being subject to it, is there will always be enough laws that if someone wants to hit you with something, they'll be able to find a way. Particularly if the laws are never designed to be applied to everyone. So if you introduce, let's say, a hate speech law, but it's not applied to everyone who breaches it, it's only applied to certain people who breach it, then it becomes a weapon. It doesn't become a law. And that's bad both for society, but also for uh, society's response to laws, because then laws are no longer... Uh, something that should be respected they are something that should be feared or controlled i think that's part of what's happened in the united states particularly in the last year or so and the crumbling of faith that certain individuals have had in the institutions because the perception that uh, it's literally one law for one and one law for another and the thing is that's a perception which exists on both sides we know that the perception of the police from the left is vastly skewed and uninformed, but we also know that from the right, that people have an, a vision of uh, how people responded to the social unrest that took place during the summer and after, and that they were unsa- they were unhappy with that. They felt it was unsatisfactory, and that effectively language is subverted as well. The largely peaceful protests. <laughs> As wherever it was, Kenosha or wherever it was, Burns in the background. Or we had an example of that ourselves recently, didn't we? Unarmed except for a knife. Yes, unarmed except for a knife, mostly peaceful protest. I think that's one of the reasons. I was thinking there about the the um, the issues we saw in the Capitol building. And really, I don't really care about it at all. In the same way that I find American politics interesting, but I don't have any deep-seated emotional attachment to it. But I was trying to think to myself why I didn't particularly, uh, even taking that into account, didn't terribly care about the capital thing. I came to the conclusion that it was because after months of the riots that we saw being presented in a very particular way, and throughout pretty much the Trump presidency, I think... American media has largely gone totally insane. And it yeah. was kind of bad before in that it was ideologically positioned, um, both the left and the right-wing media sources. But something about the, the Trump presidency or maybe the underlying polarization that happened before the Trump presidency but got worse during the course of it, substantially worse, has now meant that I don't really trust anything I see on American media. And everything I see, I kind of assume is being distorted in some way to fit a particular viewpoint. And so when the debate became, was this a coup or what was this and what does this represent? And is this a threat to the Republic? I have no way of telling what the extent of this is, because the right wing news sources are going to tell me 
It absolutely wasn't a coup. There was nothing there. This was just a spontaneous outburst. And it is absolutely crazy to think it's a coup. Now, intuitively, I think that's most likely correct because coups tend to be of a particular structure. But the other sources are going to say it was absolutely a coup. It was a threat to the nature of the Republic. It was deliberately caused. It was coordinated. All of these things. And my realisation is that I don't care enough about this, considering that Trump will be out of power in a couple of weeks, to try and figure out which of those is true. I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I just, I just got to put this to you. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's a, there are other elements here. First of all, yes, it's almost, uh, it's very difficult to know what the hell is going on on the basis of it. But one of the reasons is simply because a very good thing to remember is that it is often very difficult to understand what's going on when something happens immediately and you get the immediate first reaction. We talked about before the, the accuracy or the inaccuracy of, of the eyewitness, of eyewitness testimony. The first opinion on the scene by people who are there, there's no reason, we, we, we privilege that, but actually there's no reason to believe that it's going to be more accurate than what the opinion that we come to three or four days later. And in fact, I think that part of what a reasonable person like we would hope we are is that we look at and say, okay, well, this will probably take a few days before we have any sense of what really happened. And that's, the other thing is I would observe is that we don't just, a lot of the people in Ireland don't just take their media from the United States, and that has its problems of its optics, but many people take it from one type of media, which is then brought through the optic of the Irish media. And whatever about the American media, the Irish media is 95% Republican, bad, Democrat, good, and has been all my life. That's just the nature of the earth. And everything, and Trump obviously is a particular case, but this was true of Ronald Reagan, it was true of and everybody. So that distorts the, or lessens your sense of trust in what the reporting is again. But also, and I'll find, I'll final, my final point, then you can respond to me, is it just seems, it was so obviously not a coup. I mean, it could have been lots of things. The word insurrection is being used. It could have been a revolution. It could have been, it was certainly a violent attack by a mob on the Capitol Hill. But a coup is not what is essentially a large mob, but not a huge throng of mostly pretty well unarmed people going into the Capitol building. That's not a coup. Mostly to me, it looked like a PPP, under-medicated people looking desperately for a pharmacy, but that's not very nice. I think, I think an important point to make here is that on the Irish media, a lot of them are taking sources from the American news as well. So then you get basically a compounding of that. My issue with the Irish media on America is not actually bias. It's that most of the writing I've seen in the Irish media about America, particularly about American politics on either side, is inept it's inaccurate it's it misunderstands things that shouldn't be misunderstood it's just not very good and on american media if you haven't spent time in america like a, a solid block of time it's hard to understand how bad american news is for positioning 
and how willing it is to do things that in other countries, you simply, however bad they are, they simply would not do. But they are, like, CNN used to be quite decent. Like, it was left-leaning, but it was decent. But it's now basically unwatchable. And not because I have any particular issue with their ideology. It's just because they've become much worse at pushing, or they've become much worse at actual news and analysis, because they... I think it's just standards have fallen more than anything else. MS, MSNBC is the same in Fox. And the, I think the best example of that, in a funny kind of a way, was an interview that was between Ben Shapiro and Andrew Neil. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because it taught, it, it, it seemed to me that it, what it, it, it told us more about American media than, uh, than anything in a very long time. Ben Shapiro, listeners may be aware, is this prominent uh, uh, spokesperson for the American conservative. Uh, there's not a movement, but for American conservatives, he's a person. He's a he's he, he appears a lot. He speaks at a machine gun pace, and he's a lawyer and he's a bright guy. But I he, and he went. He had an interview on uh, BBC, I imagine. With Andrew Neil, former editor of the Sunday Times, now presenter of the week, the Daily Politics and other programs in the in in the United Kingdom. Now, Gary, I don't know if did you if you saw the interview, but he dismantled him, Shapiro, in a way that I don't think Shapiro I I have seen Shapiro ever dismantled, and Shapiro reacted by basically so you know, typical bloody lefty. And of course, Andrew Neil is not a lefty. Andrew Neil is very definitely. A man of the of the centre right, but he was doing his job. He was, and it wasn't just a bad interview for Shapiro. It was embarrassing. It was uh, Neil. Well, Shapiro very much helped. He made a fool of him, and I, we were discussing it at the time. And I think that was our take that what you should take from this is the poor quality of the American media and its poor ability to actually question the people. Because you either go on to people who support you, in which case they support you, and it's all lovely. Or you go on with people who don't support you, in which case it's a screaming match. And either way, you can get through a screaming match actually very easily, because you just throw out things yourself. Whereas Neil just surgically disassembled him. He had no sense that this could be done by somebody who shared a similar philosophical or ideological worldview. This was this was a whole... Now, to be fair to Shapiro, he actually came on after, fairly soon after and said, I misunderstood... Um, Having complained about, he said, "No, I got it wrong. I I was bad. Uh, Andrew Neil isn't what I thought he was. I should have been better." Blah, blah, blah. He was fairly, he was honest and about it, and it's really self-abnegation. But it did show, like we, you were saying at the time, I think, Gary, that American news is it's either well, it's one of us or one of them. And if it's one, if you're on one of them shows, well, then you just trade talking points and you do. and if it's one of us well then they just give you such a soft soap interview that it's completely unchallenging and makes everybody look brilliant but bench did not look brilliant on that day just to, to close again on the on the trump thing and trump being taken off twitter which again i don't care about i don't, I don't care if twitter bans everyone and sets its servers on fire i think maybe banging everyone would be the way to go i mean we finally be free michael can we remember can I remember also that, in, I don't know, if, I think this is the Western world, 22% of adults use Twitter. 
And of that, I think 10% of Twitter's users generate about 80% of the uh, tweets. I mean, I would like... I, I, I don't, as someone who is on Twitter a little, very little bit, now, but I have I read it because of we do this. And I, I, I don't quite understand, Gary, why it is as important as it is. The only conclusion I can give is it seems to me that people who are in what we call the mainstream media, the press and TV news, whatever, go to Twitter to, to be told what the news is, what the important stories are. And if that is happening, and I think that is happening, well, then that actually is very bad for the news because Twitter is not a healthy place to be and it is not a sane place. No, but even we have used Twitter to source stories, so I'm not going to, to cast that. But it just, the, the thing with, with Parler and Amazon, Originally it was, if you don't like the moderation on this social platform, create your own. And now it seems to become, if you create your own social platform, and we don't like the social moderation on it, we will have your platform removed. Yeah, the, the response, I think a number of people are saying was, yeah, you don't like it, go create your own internet. That is now the point that we have reached. Mm. And I think the, the thing that worries me about that is that I believe there should be certain things should be apolitical and regardless of how much of a shite hawk you are, you should have access to them like payment networks, like uh, certain things should just be there and they shouldn't get to decide who uses them unless you do something blatantly illegal. Mm -hmm. And when you start looking at companies and they start moving on this and they start pulling the services particularly stuff like uh, web hosting, email, as I said, payment, those are the ones that actually worry me because if those become politicized and if there becomes a growing uh, willingness among businesses, like what I would term pillar businesses, businesses that hold up other things and allow yeah. them to operate, that you can just be removed if enough pressure is applied, that is a terrible, terrible precedent to set. And it's not really you. You could you could consider a legal issue, but I think it's more of a, a social issue. And if that keeps happening, where exactly does that end, and how does it end for people? As actually, I, I I I take a great deal of amusement in the people who are chasing after Trump and saying this needs to be done because he is damaging to institutions. Because from my perspective, that is what they spend their time doing. It's, it's the sort of the Antifa thing of you will use violence at some point in the future. Therefore, we are justified to use violence against you now. And no, we don't have to prove you'll use violence in the future. We determine it and we'll now apply it. Yeah, and then we had, we had the inversion of language where violence was called speech, but speech is, but speech is called violence. And if you're from, if you're on the other, the receiving end of that, uh, it's hard to take. Well, it's hard to take, but it's also hard to take seriously. Do you? So, Carl Schmidt, we've talked about before. Yeah, oh God, you like your, you like your Carl Schmidt, don't you, Gary? So, Carl Schmidt's definition of sovereignty, of what it meant to be sovereign, and Carl Schmidt yeah. was the chief juror of Nazi Germany, very popular in China. But to the Nazis, this is what sovereignty was. He has a, a dictum that the sovereign is he who decides on the state of exception. So, of course, human rights are important. Or, of course, freedom of speech is important. These people 
will create problems in the long run so we can do things to them outside that or of course it's important that everyone have the ability to access fundamental things like banking but these people will be uh, problematic so we won't give it to them that is mm. what the nazis considered the mm-hmm. idea of sovereignty and that is a broadened thing that is the issue there that we're moving into an area where we've accepted that certain public groups or certain businesses which feel that they will gain public benefit from doing things to appeal to certain groups are willing to start defining exceptions or they have states where they have terms and conditions but they're so broad that the effective enforcement of them is arbitrary yes and arbitrary is always unjust no that's actually something you see in a lot of um, authoritarian countries many many laws that are not in any way enforced. But the second you step out of line, you'll have done something. And therefore you have broken a law. Just everyone has broken them. It's the enforcement. It's a paradox. It's one of those funny contradictions that the place you see most laws will be authoritarian countries and very weak states tend to both have lots of law and both produce consistent injustice because the application of the law becomes ultimately an arbitrary, a choice of which law is going to apply to which individual at any particular time. I, the other thing I would be interested to see is, is this the sort of thing that might give uh, various national governments a bit of a boost or a bit of a scare? Because if you, lots of countries use Twitter and they use Facebook, they use all of these tools to communicate with their citizens, often in pretty time-critical fashions. And... Um, if, if it's a case that you can get, like, a public figure can get pulled, like, a very important public figure can get pulled, are they going to start going, well, what exactly is the grounds here? So, for instance, if you are in, let's say, India, and you are engaging in a trade dispute with the American government, does that mean that these social media companies being American, or these email hosting companies, or these internet hosting companies, or any of these things are now going to be potentially an attack vector or something that can be shut down on you to limit your ability to make your point. And it's just interesting to see if if this will in any way lead to a consideration of effectively the creation of national internets or national uh, communication platforms. I don't know. It's all very interesting. But before we go, I think we would both want to reiterate the most important message of today. If you do have a points card and you haven't used up all the points, and you're with O'Brien's or somebody like that, you must use them today. So get out and get buying them. Now, Google tells me that O'Brien's is open of a Sunday. We're not recommending that you breach the five-kilometer limit, but this is certainly an essential journey. This is food. Wine is food for the soul. It's just food. Get some cheese when you're there. (laughs) I don't know if O'Brien's are... Cheese people, but they they'll probably offer a reasonable range of peanuts and, and Pringles, so you know that'll cover you. Anyway, until uh, I suppose next Wednesday, mind yourselves, stay safe, stay inside, wash your hands with high quality gin or vodka, and keep the wolf from the door. Until then, bye bye. All the best.